Good morning, friends. Happy Memorial Day weekend. Thank you for joining us today. It is great to be with you. Thank you to all of the kids who recorded things for our worship this Kid City Sunday. Um, unfortunately, our technology got in the way, but we will be utilizing those videos probably next week. So next week will be a sort of a quasi uh, Kid City Sunday, um, which is a bummer for this week because it's always one of my favorite Sundays when we are led uh, by our younger saints in worship those that Jesus gave so much attention to. And and like I said, we're going to um, play those uh, back again at a, at a future Sunday. But I want to begin today by posing a, a bit of a serious question, which is, have you ever known someone or loved someone who wasn't making good choices for their life? Like, not just you didn't like the choices they were making or you didn't quite understand the choices they were making, but it was quite clearly a movement in the wrong direction. A friend who stayed in a toxic or abusive relationship or a loved one who kept isolating themselves in their struggle for sobriety and freedom from addiction, a significant other who would always allow themselves to be stretched too thin by everyone and everything else, leaving nothing for your relationship. Do you remember what you did? Did you do anything? Did you say anything? The other week I was hanging out with friends uh, because we can do that again more than we were anyway. And I think we were talking about what we might say to our younger selves. Now, the example I'm about to give is not like the worst example of my life, but it is one uh, example. About 20 years ago, I was in my first year at college in London. I was 17 years old, and I was half the world away from my closest family. My, my parents were still in Hong Kong. My brothers were in Australia and California. And I had been living in England at that point for two years. I'd moved at 15 to finish out high school. And I know... There are some mature, self-aware 17-year-olds, but I wasn't one of them. Uh, To be honest, at that point in my life, I wasn't thinking about anything or anyone but me. I wasn't really aware of anything or anyone but me. I mean, understandably, perhaps, I was still navigating a new culture and a new country. I was wondering if the faith I had inherited was worth holding on to while wrestling with questions of identity and belonging and purpose of who am I and where do I fit and, and what should I do with my life? And so, so I do, I want to show my younger self some appropriate grace. But at the same time, I was just ready to enjoy myself. I was young, single, a college student in the heart of London. The world was my oyster and my, my friends and I would be out most nights looking for a good time. I was in control of my life, so it seemed. Apart from making sure I passed my classes, I could pretty much do what I wanted. No one to tell me what to do, no one keeping track of me. I could play soccer or football over there on Sunday mornings. No one was telling me I had to go to church. My parents and my family would check in. But whether I responded was up to me. And in that first year of college, I did a pretty awful job of letting them know how I was doing. Like, I have no idea how my parents were so willing to give me the space to grow without knowing what was going on. If my kids did what I did to my parents, I mean, if they didn't communicate with me the way I didn't communicate with my parents, y'all, I'd be tracking them down. And Apple is my friend here with the, you know, find your kids app. But anyway, the the question, the answer to that question, my friends and I had posed about what we would say to our younger selves, what I would have said to 17-year-old first year in college me, it would have been simple. Try a little bit this year. Try a little bit this year. Because I didn't. 
I played video games with friends instead of applying myself to my studies. I might have read one book all year. I did the bare minimum to get by in class, and, and while I did pass my first year, I did not pass it by much. And because of that, I wasn't able to pick up any summer internships after that first year, which is what you need to do to set yourself on a path to getting a job in that field. At least, at least that's the way the system was supposed to work. Now, I'm grateful for the journey God has brought me on that has landed me here. Honestly, if I had done better that year, you know, who even knows if I would have found myself in the U.S.? And the reason I tell that story is not to say that academic success and professional stability are the measures for a good life. And like I said, that's not even the, the worst of the decisions or non-decisions that I've made. I've shared some of my other stories. And, but when I think about my life, when I look back on my life and think about the decisions I would have made differently, that's one of them. And I wish I had had people around me. I wish I had let people in, like my family, who were around me who would have invited me and cajoled me and convinced me to take stock of where I was and who would have pointed out the path I was on. This is what Paul has been doing in his letter to the Galatians, a letter written to a group of churches he had started in a region in modern-day Turkey. We have a map here. To recap real quick, there was a group of folks who had come to the Galatian church from the Jerusalem church, Jerusalem is right at the bottom of that map, tiny little square there. The Jerusalem church was the headquarters of this burgeoning Jesus movement, and they had gone up to Galatia, and they were saying that the Gentile Christians, that is non-Jewish Christians, had to be circumcised in order to be properly included in the community of faith. Circumcision was the sign of the promise God had made to the people of Israel in the Old Testament, first through Abraham and then enshrined in the law of Moses. And remember, the early church began as a mostly Jewish movement. And so the purpose of Paul's letter to the Galatians was to push back on these infiltrators because for him to add circumcision as a requirement to inclusion was to undercut the very gospel of Jesus Christ, which is good news of grace, that people need only believe and put their trust in Jesus to know God and receive God's life. This was an absolutely vital issue for Paul because if the church was to require Gentiles to be circumcised, they would in effect be labeling Gentile Christians as second class. And they would be raising human-made barriers to relationship with God that God himself in Christ did away with. And as we heard last week, Paul wrote in this stirring passage, Galatians 3, 26 to 28, you are all God's children through faith in Christ Jesus. All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Do you hear all of the alls? Now, Paul is not saying that our differences don't matter. What he's saying is that if we are in Christ, our differences should not divide us. And our differences should not, certainly should not be used to marginalize or dehumanize or demonize or otherize. There are no second class citizens in the kingdom of God. Say it with me. There are no second class citizens in the kingdom of God. But Paul also knows how deeply the community has been infiltrated by these false teachers 
these adders to the gospel. They have been persuasive. They have been articulate. They have questioned Paul's own credentials. Paul knows he has to meet them head on. He has to state his case to the Galatian church so that, so that they, they would be won back for the gospel of grace. And so that's what he's, he does. That's what he's been doing, as we've heard over these last few weeks. In chapter 1, he defended his own authority as one who encountered Jesus directly. In chapter 2, he talked up his equal partnership with the leaders of the Jerusalem church, James, Peter, and John. In chapter 3, he drew from Genesis. He pointed to the original covenant with Abraham, the forefather of their faith that promised the blessing of God to all people and not just to the Jews. And in the beginning of chapter 4, he leans into his personal relationship with the church. At each point, Paul is using whatever means at his disposal to persuade this church, these beloved friends of his, that the way of the opposition party, the way that adds requirements beyond faith in Jesus Christ, is the wrong direction to be heading, to put it mildly. Today's passage is Galatians 4, 21-5-1, and it is a doozy. I was wrestling with it all week. I was trying to figure out first how to understand it and then how to explain it, you know, why it matters and what it meant for the Galatian church and then what that means for us. So I'm going to read it and then we'll try to work through it a little bit. So I invite you to stand as you're able to reverence the reading of God's word. Galatians 4, beginning at verse 21. This is from the Common English Bible. Paul writes, Tell me, those of you who want to be under the law, don't you listen to the law? It's written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and one by the free woman. The son of the slave woman was conceived the normal way, but the son by the free woman was conceived through a promise. These things are an allegory. The, the women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to slave children. This is Hagar. Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and she corresponds to the present-day Jerusalem because the city is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. And then skipping down to verse 28, Brothers and sisters, you are children of the promise, like Isaac. But just as it was then, so it is now also. The one who was conceived the normal way harassed the one who was conceived by the Spirit. But what does the Scripture say? Throw out the slave woman and her son, because the slave woman's son won't share the inheritance with the free woman's son. And therefore, brothers and sisters, we aren't the slave woman's children, but we are the free woman's children. Christ has set us free for freedom. Therefore, stand firm and don't submit to the bondage of slavery again. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, you see why I was wrestling with it all week. You guys can have a seat. There's folks still standing in the office. If <laughs> you see why I was wrestling with it all week, it's a dense passage. It's, a, it's an uncomfortable passage. It's a, a passage that has been misused and abused. I was sorely tempted to skip over it because when I was reading it initially, I, I thought, you know, why would I want to dive into this when I feel like it's such a, a unfortunate analogy for Paul to use, such a, a fraught passage, especially for those of us on this side of American chattel slavery. You know, why would Paul seemingly cast Hagar and her offspring as disposable? Uh, when I think of Hagar, I think of, of a sermon preached by Marissa Stubbs a few years ago. 
when she highlighted this often forgotten hero of the faith, this woman whose resilience and perseverance shine through in spite of and showing up the oppressive and exploitative actions of Abraham and Sarah, our ancestors in the faith. And if you haven't heard that sermon, you should go back and find it. But when I think of Hagar, I see that the first person in the Bible who named God was an enslaved African woman, and she called him El Roy, God who sees. And she named her son Ishmael, God who hears. Even in the narrative of Genesis itself, Hagar is cast in a sympathetic light, even more so than Abraham and Sarah. So why would Paul do what he did? Why would Paul have phrased it the way that he did? So I, I you know, I, I, I wanted to just skip it. I wanted to preach on a couple other verses, and I almost did. But as I wrestled and as I read, as I researched, as I prayed, I came upon the conclusion of British scholar Tom Wright, who says that this is not just a weird, strange side piece to the main argument. This is actually the core passage of the letter. This is the climax of Galatians. This is what Paul has been building towards. And I mean, we have sort of seen that already. Because Galatians 5.1, the summary statement of this passage, has been our anchor verse for this series. Christ has set us free for freedom. Therefore, stand firm and don't submit to the bondage of slavery again. Our theme for this series has been freedom. The title has been Be Free. That's the core concept of Paul's letter. And yet we have seen the fruits of racism and white supremacy in our country. We have seen Christian complicity in the oppression and marginalization of Africans, of indigenous folks, and of other people of color, often justified using verses from the Bible or conclusions that could be gleaned from passages like this. And yet, as I was reminded while browsing Twitter yesterday in one of my writing-slash-procrastination breaks, even the devil used scripture to try to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. That's called proof texting. It's utilizing a single verse to prove your point, whatever that point may be. Jesus' response was to place scripture in its proper context. As Mexican liberation theologian Elsa Tamez writes, echoing other scholars, Paul's story about Hagar and Sarah is only understood if we place it in the global context of the letter to the Galatians. To try to understand the account on its own is difficult, and the text remains incomprehensible. And so that's what we're going to do here. We're going to try to place it in its context, in the letter as a whole, and in that setting. First, we need to understand what it might have meant to Paul's Galatian audience. For Paul, the used language of slavery and freedom would have been just as visceral and visible for them as it is for us. Slavery was a common practice in the Roman Empire, indeed a, a core economic engine. And Galatia, it seems, had its own slave market. But more than that, Paul's listeners, both Jew and Gentile, would likely know that the central story of the Jewish faith, the people of Israel, is what? The Exodus story. The story of God rescuing the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and delivering them to freedom, liberating them, sending salvation through his servant Moses. For the early church, Scripture was the Holy Bi- the, the, the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. What governed much of the early church were the holy texts and practices of the early Christians, most of whom were Jewish. Hence the power and persuasiveness of the argument that Gentile Christians had to follow the law and be circumcised. Paul is using an analogy that would have been crystal clear to his hearers. Whatever enslaves you is not of God. 
whatever liberates you is. As Watson reminded us last week, God is a freedom-giving God, and the gospel is a freedom-giving message. Second, while we might protest about you know, Paul's retelling of the story of Hagar and Sarah and the flattening of the text and the absolution of Sarah's role in this and the dismissal of Hagar's heroism, Paul is quite clear that he's not approaching this from a historical or factual perspective. He says it quite clearly in verse 24. These things are an allegory. In rabbinic tradition, there were several ways of approaching Scripture. And the most superficial approach, the, the basic one, was the literal one. And so Paul himself, who was trained in a rabbinic school, he's utilizing a deeper interpretation of the text. It was not Paul's goal to make either person, Hagar or Sarah, or either branch of their offspring, villainous or virtuous. His approach was purely from the perspective of the covenant history of Israel. No one would have disputed that God blessed Hagar and her offspring. We see that in the stories told in Genesis 16 and 21. But likewise, no one would have disputed that God chose Abraham and Sarah to be the ones through whom he would bring blessing to the world, miraculously giving this barren couple a child in their old age, a child of promise, Isaac, who in turn was the father of Jacob, the patriarch of the 12 tribes of Israel, through whom Jesus the Messiah came. Third and most pivotally, what Paul is doing here is turning the argument of his opponents on its head. In Jewish theology, Hagar was the mother of the Gentiles. And so what Paul's opponents were probably saying was something like this. I have a table to help you see. Paul's opponent's argument was setting Sarah's offspring up against Hagar's offspring. You can see it. I'll explain it in a, in a moment. What they were saying was something like this. Look, we who are Jewish, we who are under the law, we are the direct descendants of Abraham and Sarah through the promise of God that came in the person of Isaac. We are Israel. We are the recipients of the law of Moses. We are the people of God through blood and covenant. The Gentiles are descended from Hagar, the slave woman whose offspring was conceived because they didn't trust God. And they drove her out. They drove them out. And therefore, we too should drive out the slave woman and her descendants, i.e. the Gentiles, from among us, because we will not share an inheritance with them. That's verse 30. That's a, a paraphrase of Genesis 21.10. It was all an argument for adhering to the law. What Paul is saying, though, is that his opponents have it wrong. And we have a different table laying out Paul's arguments as he explains the difference between Sarah's offspring and Hagar's offspring. You can see that some of those, those first two lines are the same, that Sarah was free and her offspring are free, that Hagar's offspring were slaves, and that Sarah's offspring were conceived through God's promise and Hagar's offspring were conceived by human effort. But that's where it changes. Paul says, God's family, God's covenant is defined not by blood or by adherence to the law, but by faith. Trust in God is demonstrated not by human actions to be proven right as, as he portrays adherence to the law, but by believing in God as revealed in Jesus. And so, yes, yeah, as you said, Hagar's offspring was conceived because of human effort, but human effort is what the opposition were advocating in requiring obedience to the law. 
And so it's actually we who believe by faith and not by our efforts who are the true descendants of Sarah. We who are not bound by human conventions, who do not put up unnecessary barriers in front of those who seek God, we are the free woman's children. And then for good measure, he says, plus, just as Sarah's son Isaac was harassed by Hagar's son Ishmael, so we are, who are advocating for freedom for Gentile Christians are being harassed by those who are advocating for circumcision. And this is where he delivers the, the coup de grace, the knockout punch of his argument. He says, Christ has set us free for freedom. Therefore, stand firm and don't submit to the bondage of slavery again. In their context, in this letter, he's saying, I hope I have proven by turning my opponent's very words and arguments against them that you should not let yourselves be circumcised. To speak more generally, the slavery he's referring to is the idea that in order to be right before God, you can and need to do things. It's easy for us to think that, you know, God couldn't possibly love us unless we first make ourselves right, unless we clean up our act. But Paul's saying, don't, don't add requirements to faith in Jesus. Don't put up these barriers that demand that people earn their right to relationship with God. That's what Christ came to do away with. In Christ, we are free. I've been thinking about what that means, not just conceptually, but in, in practice and in intangible action. Here in the United States, freedom is often posited, first of all, individualistically, right? What freedom means for me. And second, often in terms of being unhindered or unencumbered, being free to do whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it, however you choose to with whomever you'd like. Don't tell me what I can and can't do, right? But what is freedom in Christ? And how does it relate to the kingdom of God? Or, or to put it another, another way, how do I understand my freedom in Christ? And how does it relate to others? Let me offer just a couple of thoughts. First, to be free in Christ is to know that you are fully known and fully loved by God with no preconditions. We can't do anything to make God love us more, and nor can we do anything to make God love us less. None of the things you have done or had done to you determine how much God loves you. Your actions, your addictions, your achievements, your good deeds, your screw-ups, your triumphs, your failures, your brokenness, your baggage, none of this determines how much God loves you. God has freed you from a life of trying to earn the affirmation of others including, and most importantly, the affirmation of the one whose affirmation matters most anyway, whose affirmation is the most life-giving. You already have that. Jesus came to prove it. To be free in Christ is to know that Christ lived and died so you might know a better world and a better way for yourself as well as for others, a way that is found and grounded in the love of God. Because if you truly knew how much God loves you, as you are, right now, even with all of the scabs and scars you hide in the shadows, you might begin to realize you don't have to hide those wounds. You might begin to let the light in. You might begin to let healing start. You might begin to loosen your grip on how you are perceived or what you feel like you need to prove. And so let me invite you this week to start 
by spending five minutes every day, five minutes, morning or night, asking God to show you how much God loves you. Just five minutes. Just sit still for five minutes. Ask God to show you how much God loves you. Because if you truly knew how much God loves you and how wonderful that love really is, you might begin to allow your life to become permeated and pervaded by that love. And that love would carry you through the hard conversations and the hard times and the hard knocks of this life in this beautiful but broken world and the hard work of shining a light in dark places, whether that is working for justice and equity in our school systems or fighting for affordable housing when all that seems to be coming in are luxury condos or working to see policies enacted that benefit the least of these rather than the well-off and the well-connected or just trying to love your family well, trying to love your neighbors well, trying to love God well. To quote Elsa Thomas again, freedom Freedom is not romantic or abstract. Human beings are only free in concrete realities, both sad and joyful. We seek freedom from the prisons that we experience in our everyday lives, in our social and ecclesial lives. We seek freedom from the fears and anguish caused by global uncertainty. Also, freedom through celebrations of all kinds in this world. Birthdays and weddings and victories, beginnings and endings. I am interested in specific freedoms for free human beings with specific bodies. We need always to put an anchor on the words freedom and to be free so they do not become empty and fade away as they have so many times in history. I think freedom in Christ is the foundation for every other concrete and tangible freedom. For us to know that we are beloved by God, it frees us in every other way. It frees us to fight for others' freedoms as well, for their emotional well-being, for their physical and material flourishing, flourishing, and yes, for their relational and spiritual wholeness as well. And let me explicitly name, as we stand a couple of days from Pride Month, freedom from exclusion and fear and shame for our LGBTQ siblings. In the words of the great South African activist and statesman Nelson Mandela, to be free is not merely to cast off one's chains, but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others. And that includes being in community together. Like I said, I I wish I had had folks around me back in college who would have journeyed with me on a better path and a better direction. I wish I had let in the folks who were around me. Right before Paul talks about Hagar and Sarah, he uses the analogy of being a mother in childbirth saying, my little children, hear the tenderness, the the care he has for his friends. He says, I'm going through labor pains again until Christ is formed in you. Now, as a pastor of spiritual formation, this is a go-to verse for me. The goal of our spiritual journey is for us to be formed increasingly in the likeness of Christ. And usually we take this to mean the character of Christ, his cares and concerns, his humility, his love. And I believe that still holds for all of us individually. But Paul is talking to a community of faith. He longs to see Christ birthed among them. Just as Jesus proclaimed the kingdom is among us. And that is to do with how we are free together. It's to do with how we love each other. How we show the world what God's family looks like. Working out the kingdom among us. Having Christ formed in us as a community. Becoming the hands and feet of Jesus is not a matter of avoiding the hard conversations. But entering into them and maturing in our ability to speak with both grace and truth. It is not just avoiding the challenging situations. But contending for love and faithfulness. And so providing God the opportunity to show up. 
It is not just avoiding temptations by pretending they aren't really that bad, but by saying in that first step for addicts, we are powerless and we need help. It is walking with one another. As we process our our racial trauma or our internalized white normativity, is asking for help when we are struggling with sexual addiction or we're tempted to just numb out all the time. It is to refuse to believe the lie of independence and self-sufficiency, but to grasp hold of the lifeline, the life-giving truth of interdependency, that our liberation is bound up with one another's. It's showing up. It's getting involved. It's participating in building something together. To be free is demonstrated in how we live as individuals and as a community. So my prayer, friends, siblings, family, is that we, each of us individually and all of us together, might experience freedom to the full, life to the full as Christ intended it and as Christ offers it. Freedom in specific ways, in our specific bodies, beginning this specific week. And may it all begin with freedom in Christ, with the freedom that is found in knowing you are loved by God. Would you pray with me? God, in this year of challenge, of particular challenge, when uh, even I know the, uh, the the temptation has been to numb out, it's been to run away, it's been to bury my head in the sand for a bit, as, as long as I can before coming out and facing the world or facing myself, God, your spirit draws us toward the light, toward wholeness, toward freedom. That, that image that we have as, as the, the series graphic of, of be free of the bird in a cage with an open door. God, I think that's an image for many of us. A reminder, a word from you to many of us that the chains are broken. Stop hanging around with them wrapped around us. The door is open. Step out under the open. Take a deep breath. And so, God, I I pray that for my siblings who are watching, who are listening, that we might know your freedom, we might know your pleasure, God. I know your presence with us. That that might change us, change us, and change the, the places that we, that we that we find ourselves in. That we wouldn't be acting out of our trauma or our triggers or our hurt or our scars, but that we would be acting out of the love of God. And as you first loved us, so then we love. 
May that be true of us from this day forward. In every concrete, specific situation we find ourselves in. We pray these things in the name who became specific for us so that we might be free. In Jesus' name, amen.